0: But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may sit down. Oh, sorry.
1: If you are four years old to second grade, you are released to the herd with the looses this morning. Four years old to second grade. I'm going to pray with Pastor here, and then we'll get after it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this man. Thank you for the work that you're doing in him and and knowing, too, um, just um, the strain and and the lifting that he does each and every week that we may or may not understand or we take for granted. Let us not take that for granted. Let us understand that he deeply cares for our souls, and he does so faithfully by many, many things, but faithfully by bringing us the gospel each and every Sunday um, that we may hear the truth and that, that our hearts would be moved by that. So, Father, just give him boldness this morning to continue to proclaim the truth of your scriptures and the truth of your word, and let it pierce our hearts to do that we would leave here um, knowing and loving Jesus and wanting and desiring to honor him with our times and treasures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Well, go ahead and open up your copy of Scripture to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Keep your hand there. We're going to be working through these handful of verses, these four four verses this morning. Um, This is an important section of Scripture when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a new series that we've started. We're three weeks into it. And up to this point of time, what you're going to notice is that just like a good book that you read has a prologue and then it moves from a prologue to an introduction. This is really what Jesus is going for this morning. The first 16 verses in a very real way are basically the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has come and he's talking about discipleship. He's talking about what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Then he turns his attention to what does it look like? What what will it look like for a disciple if this disciple lives like Jesus, walks like Jesus, talks like Jesus? What will be the results of kingdom living? And we saw last week what those results were, and we saw those in verses 10 through 16, that you might be persecuted for living, talking, thinking, acting like Jesus, but you will most definitely be salt and light in the world. And Jesus continues on without a hitch in his step moves right on to this next section so there's a sense in which verses 17 through 20 directly connect to everything he said in the first 16 verses there's also this very real sense in which Jesus is moving on to a brand new way of thinking I'm sure many of you guys have heard this phrase before this this idea of the best of the best And no matter the category, we can almost always think of somebody who's the best of the best in their field. So if we sat down over a cup of coffee, we were just playing a game, and we were talking about, you know, who who is the best of the best when it comes to basketball? Most of us would probably go Michael Jordan. He's the best of the best. I heard a whistle, somebody back there, at least one person is a Michael Jordan fan. You think about evangelism. In the world of Christianity, if you say, who is the best of the best when it comes to evangelism? Someone might go Billy Grant. Who's the best of the best maybe in the world of, the world of science? Who, who is someone who just stands out as being one of the top premier thinkers? You might say Stephen Hawking. The world of preaching, back in the 1800s, he stands out as the prince of preachers. If you're talking about who is the, the one who comes to the top, who, who would be this, this one who's the best of the best, someone might go Charles Spurgeon. And these people are some of the best in their field, And as a result, they make everyone else pale in comparison. Let's just face the fact, when you go out and play a pickup game, of basketball, no matter how much you want to be like Mike, you are not Mike. Michael Jordan is not you. It doesn't matter how great you are in the world of physics or general relativity, these sorts of things, you are not Stephen Hawking. These guys are the best. They set the bar high. They are the cream of the top. They're They're the pinnacle. They're the best of the best. And because their achievements have set such a high bar, rightly so, we give them the title, You Are It. Now just imagine if someone came along and gave an ultimatum that sounded like this. A 10-year-old boy comes, junior high, wants to play on the basketball team, and the coach sets him down, looks at him very serious in his face, and says this, little 10-year-old boy. Unless your skills at basketball can exceed those of Michael Jordan, you will never, ever, ever play on the junior high basketball team. The little boy would be crushed. He's not Michael Jordan, it's obvious. What if someone came along and gave this ultimatum? Unless you write a better research paper on quantum gravity that exceeds that of Stephen Hawking, you will never ever graduate high school. Well, that's just going to crush the soul of that high school. He's not Stephen Hawking. There's a way. Write a more superior paper on quantum gravity, his area of expertise, than Stephen Hawking. There's, there's something wrapped up in this way of thinking that comes along, and if someone were to tell us this, this will never happen unless you succeed, unless you exceed far surpassing the one who is the pinnacle in this certain field, there's no way this certain thing is ever going to happen. That just comes to us like, like a blow, a blow to the gut, it would come to us and sort of exasperate us, bring us to that point of desperation. You, you're telling me I have to be better than Michael Jordan, better than Stephen Hawking? That's, that's impossible. Yet when we turn our attention to these four verses this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, we are going to hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speak words that sound exactly like this. He's going to speak words that sound exactly like this this idea regarding Christ's kingdom and regarding a disciple's righteousness, these, these verses before us are going to be the introduction to Jesus' main teaching point in the Sermon on the Mount. As I said, verses 1 through 16 were the prologue, and when you build up to verses 17 through 20, Jesus is going to present two ideas before us, and these two ideas are going to come together and give us a singular principle, and this singular principle is going to be the guide for Jesus for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to lift up this idea that the authority of Scripture is good and the authority of Scripture is something that we're to hold on to. The authority of Scripture has a place in the life of a disciple and simultaneously what he's going to do is turn and define the very high requirements of what it looks like for a disciple to be in the kingdom of God. And these two ideas look like they're just sort of seemingly out there. Like how in the world can this idea of Jesus holding to the authority of Scripture, he's going to just talk about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the law of God, the word of God. And then he's going to immediately turn and just start talking about the requirements of the kingdom. What does it look like for a disciple? And what he's going to do in these four verses is show there's a very vital connection between how we view, interact, obey, submit to the word of God and the high requirements of the kingdom. And when we come down to verse 20, Jesus is going to give us that principle and it's going to be that principle we see in verse 20 that is going to be Jesus' guide for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So, this morning, if you look in your copy of Scripture, we're going to divide our verses right in half. Verses 17 and 18 will show us this that Jesus is going to affirm the authority of Scripture, he's going to affirm the goodness of Scripture. And then, the second half of our verses this morning, verses 19 and 20, Jesus is going to define the requirements of. Of the kingdom. So if Jesus is going to first turn his attention to the authority of Scripture, in your your Bible, look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus says this Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but actually I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the first thing we need to do is just understand what Jesus means by that phrase, "the law and the prophets because that 's not a phrase we use too often, and really, what that phrase is, this idea of the law and the prophets, is sort of a code phrase that basically just refers to scripture. when it 's used in this context, when it 's used in this way, what Jesus is talking about is the Old Testament scripture. Also known as just the law sometimes. Or it's called the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's called the Torah. Sometimes it's just called the word of God. There's, there's different ways to refer to the Old Testament scripture. But when Jesus uses this phrase, the law or the prophets, what he's doing is he's talking about Old Testament scripture. He's talking about the word of God, the self-revelation of God himself to, to his people. And when Jesus uses this phrase, notice what he's going to do. He's going to talk about the place that the law and the prophets, the place that Old Testament Scripture is to have in the life of a disciple. See, Jesus has been talking about life with God under the rule of God and up to the point That we have here in verse 17 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about you can have life with God under the rule of God and it's been living under the umbrella of grace. There's nothing you can do. Your good works cannot get you there. Thinking you don't need Jesus and you can just do things will not get you there. Thinking that you can fulfill somehow all the right things that you need to fulfill on your own will not get you there. He's been talking about you can have a right relationship with the Father and he couches this reality in the world of grace. Jesus has said nothing concerning the importance of the law. Nothing concerning the traditional interpretations of the law. Nothing encouraging obedience to the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. And if you were to insert yourself into this scenario where Jesus is on the hill sitting down a... a. a a large crowd sitting in front of him with the disciples who have come and separated themselves out of the crowd a little bit closer inside that context, you can just begin to think as Jesus is teaching them with one who has authority, they would be thinking to themselves, okay, Jesus is talking about a right relationship with God, but he's not saying anything about what we've always heard what it takes to have a right relationship with God. Everything Up until Jesus, showing up on their doorstep has been this. If you want to be right with God, you have to obey the law perfectly. You want a relationship with God? Make sure you never stumble or fail in regard to anything that you read in the Old Testament. If you want to see the ones who are doing it right, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day would step up to the front and go, We are the ones getting this done. Look to us. We're going to pave the path listen to our interpretation, listen to our teaching. If you want to have a right relationship with God, do what we say, think how we think, live your life according to our interpretation of the law. And so for Jesus to show up and couch right relationship with God in the realm of grace would have been absolutely startling. And you get the sense that the crowd is beginning to wonder if Jesus is somehow taking the Old Testament and then just pitching it out the window. But Jesus potentially sensing this this thought, maybe rumbling around, maybe people were beginning to use this as an accusation against Jesus saying, this man is teaching with authority but he's doing away with the precious revelation of God. Jesus comes in verse 17 and says this, do not think, let me, let me assuage any fears you might have. I am coming to you, yes, teaching with authority with kingly authority as the one who's going to show you the right interpretation of how to understand God's word. Do not think that I'm coming to take the law and the prophets and then just pitch them out the back door. No, I've not come to get rid of them i've actually come to to fulfill them and ultimately jesus is affirming the goodness and authority of the scriptures and that's what he's going to do in verse 17 and 18 when you look at verse 17 jesus is going to affirm the goodness of god's word he's going to affirm the goodness of scripture And he's going to do this by stating that he has actually come to fulfill the Scriptures. So when Jesus shows up on their doorstep and he's teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, what he's saying is this, don't don't be fearful that I'm coming to get rid of everything that God is saying. Quite contrary to what you may think, I am not coming to abolish all the law and the prophets have been talking about. Rather, I am here to fulfill them. All of the law... All of the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, everything they are, they point to me. And in this reality that all of the Old Testament rolls up and points forward to me, this is the goodness of the scriptures. I'm not going to get rid of the thing that had been pointing to me. I'm here to stand and say the goodness of Scripture is this. When you look at the moral law, when you look at the civil law, when you look at the religious law of Israel, the goodness is this. They point forward to me. When you look at the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament Scripture, they find their fulfillment in me. The idea of the nation of Israel, the idea of the temple, the idea of the sacrifices, they point forward to me. All of the judges, all of the prophets, all of the priests, all of their kings, they find their fulfillment in me. I am the pinnacle of wisdom. All of the wisdom literature points forward to me. The fuel behind the worship that we read in the book of Psalms finds its fulfillment in me. Everything in the Old Testament scripture rolls up and points forward finding its purpose in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes along and he's, he's going to help them. Do not be fearful. I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm actually here to point out that the law is very good. The word of God is very good. I am not doing away with this good thing because every ounce of it points forward to Me, who is standing here before you, teaching you right now. The second thing Jesus does, verse 18, is he moves to the authority of Scripture. So, Jesus affirms the goodness of Scripture. Goodness of Scripture is, it points forward to me. Then right on the heels of affirming the goodness of Scripture, he goes right to the authority of Scripture. This is what he's going to say in verse 18. He's going to say, truly I say to you. Heaven and earth, these things will pass away, but not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is going to affirm the authority of Scripture by attesting to its unfailing nature, the unfailing nature of the Word of God. Jesus references there two little things, not an iota, not a dot. Iota is a Greek word, for, the Hebrew, for a Hebrew letter. And if you've ever seen Hebrew written out, it is not like our English alphabet. But there's actually a word, there's actually a letter in Hebrew called a yod. And it's just the tiniest little dot. If you were to basically take your pencil and just pop it on your paper, that would be a letter in the Hebrew language. And that's what Jesus is referencing here. He says, even down to the smallest, most finite letter in the word of God... Then he moves on and he says, not a dot. And a dot, that word behind dot is this. It means little little horn. In English, we'd call it a seraph on on the way you draw it—a font. And so there's some letters in the Hebrew language, the only way that you distinguish them is this, is there's this tiny little hook that's on the letter that makes it completely different from another letter in the Hebrew language. So Jesus is talking about... The law, the word of God, even down to the most minuscule little dot that represents God's word, even down to that that tiniest little hook, all of these things will remain. All of these things will not fall away. It will be easier for heaven and earth to pass away. And when heaven and earth do pass away, there's going to be one thing that is still there. It will be the word of God. And in a very real way, what Jesus is doing is he is elevating the authority of Scripture. This is the highest view of the Old Testament that could ever possibly be imagined. Because it says that things are going to fail. Things will come to an end. But the one thing that will remain is this, the authoritative self-revelation of God to his people. This will not pass away. So, in these first two verses, Jesus shows us this. He absolutely, 100%, beyond a shadow of a doubt, affirms I have not come to debunk the Old Testament, but I am here to tell you it is good, it is authoritative, and it is right. It finds its fulfillment in me. Now, you read those first two verses. I get it. Scripture, law and prophets, law of God, word of God, I get it. Then Jesus inserts one little word in verse 19, therefore, and then he just seems to switch to a whole other topic. All of a sudden he's just talking about kingdom of heaven this, kingdom of heaven that, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And you sort of have to ask the question, like, what on earth is the connector? Like, how does Jesus go from authority of Scripture, goodness of Scripture, finds its fulfillment of me, and by the way, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Like, for him, there's an obvious connection because it all hinges on that word in verse 19, therefore, so we have to ask the question, how does Jesus move from verses 17 and 18 to verses 19 and 20. I think it is this. For Jesus, there's a very direct connection between the authority and the goodness and the fulfillment of Scripture in Him as it directly relates to the way a disciple interacts with that word and the way a disciple finds righteousness not within himself. Jesus turns in light of Him affirming the authority of Scripture, and now he's going to define the requirements of the kingdom. This is what he's going to do in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, in light of everything I just said about Scripture, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The big question we have to ask ourselves is this. What does the authority of Scripture have to do with the requirements of the kingdom? What does the authority of Scripture have to do with the requirements of the kingdom? Because it sounds sort of foreign to our ears. Because what we would do is go the the requirements of the kingdom, the high standards of the kingdom, the way that you find entrance into the kingdom is by grace. But it sounds like Jesus is going to say something completely else, something completely different. And the reality is he is, but it's got a purpose behind it. See, when Jesus, if we could sit down in front of Jesus and go, Jesus, what does the authority of Scripture have to do with the requirements of the kingdom The answer, according to Jesus, would be this. It has everything to do with each other. There is a very direct connection between them. Notice that Jesus is building an argument. And it hinges on that singular little word, therefore. The word therefore reveals a vital connection between the law of God and the kingdom of God. Because Christ has not come to abolish the law... "...but to fulfill it, and because not an iota or dot will pass from the law until all has been fulfilled, therefore two things are a very stark reality." And the first one is this, that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is measured by a disciple's conformity to the Scriptures. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is measured by a disciple's obedience to the Scriptures. And this is what you see in verse 19. Jesus is going to start talking about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So in light of a scripture, in light of what you hear Jesus saying, it's almost like he's saying you stand at a fork in the road. And one of the things you can do is go, Jesus, I see how high you're elevating scripture. I see the authority of scripture. I see the goodness of scripture. I see how it is all fulfilled in you. But eh, not that big a deal. I mean, I'm glad you're fired up about Scripture, but uh, me, not so much. There are some things I like, some things I don't like. I'm going to major on the big parts, but when it comes down to those little iotas, those little dots, those little periods, those little, those little hooks, those little serifs, I mean, some of those things I'm going to listen to, but eh, some of them I'm not. Jesus says... If you fall into this category as one who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If we treat God's word lightly and encourage others to do so, if we have a settled and consistent attitude of opposition towards Scripture, then we are guilty of relaxing God's commandments proving that we deserve to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But the other path that we could travel at that fork in the road is this, we hear Jesus talking about the authority and the goodness and the fulfillment of Scripture in Him, and He comes along and says this, but the other way you could go is this, is you recognize the authority, you recognize the goodness, you recognize the absolute beauty of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Scriptures, and it leads you to do this, do them and teach them, thereby being called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, the the stark contrast to those who treat God's word lightly encourage others to do so are those people who love and keep the least of God's commandments and who teach others to love and keep God's commandments. If we have a settled attitude of obedience toward the Scriptures, then Jesus says this is a sure mark that we love Christ and belong to To his kingdom. See, the way a disciple relates in obedience to the Word of God is a sign that he or she is actually a true disciple. The way a disciple relates in obedience to the Word of God is a sign that he or she is actually a true disciple. And I'm going to read you this quote here because it just sums it up perfectly by a man named Sinclair Ferguson who says this, The law is not the basis on which we merit salvation. See, Jesus isn't teaching, obey the law, get heaven. He's not saying, only until you obey all 246 commandments and all 365 prohibitions of the Old Testament law... The day you get that down, then that is when you get a relationship with me. The law is not the basis on which we merit salvation, but the law does provide a test to distinguish between those who belong to the kingdom of salvation and those who are outside of the kingdom. It is the real test of whether we have been born again or not. If we have been born again, then God's law has been written on our hearts and we obey it joyfully. If we have not been born again, we may make a pretense at living the born-again life, but eventually the mask will be dropped, we will despise some of God's laws, and soon we will encourage others to do so as well, and thus we will be barred from the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is teaching is this, a very, very high requirement of the kingdom. He is showing this. It is not enough for you just to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I I know Jesus of course I'm a disciple, of course I'm a follower, of course I'm a believer, but then the course of your life has just been marked by a settled disobedience towards the thing that came to point forward and to find its fulfillment in Jesus. If your life is one of settled disobedience towards the Word of God, which wraps up and finds its full fulfillment in Jesus Christ, but yet in the other breath you say, I am a follower of Jesus, Jesus is. Coming coming along and saying, let me help you understand something. You are actually relaxing the commandments. You are relaxing the authority and the goodness and the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Word of God, and that is actually proving that you are not a disciple. It's proving that you are not a disciple. This is admittedly weighty. This is admittedly a high requirement of the kingdom, but guess what? Jesus isn't even done yet. Because he's going to turn in almost the same breath and go to verse 20 and he's going to ratchet it up one more notch. He's going to say this, Second, not, not only is greatness in the kingdom of heaven measured by a disciple's obedience to the scriptures, but entry, entry into the kingdom of heaven is impossible without a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus is sitting here teaching and he's talking and he's looking at these disciples and the, the crowds are like eavesdropping, leaning over the shoulders of the disciples just trying to hear a word from Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, Scripture good, Scripture authoritative, finds its fulfillment in me. By the way, if your life is not one that is led by steered by the word of God itself, there's a good chance that you're proclaiming one thing and the reality is you're not a really true disciple. Oh, and by the way, another thing, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of these guys over here, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And herein lies the rub of everything that Jesus has been teaching so far. The scribes were the most accurate interpreters of God's Word. The Pharisees were the most devout practitioners of God's Word. And Jesus, looking at these people, says your only hope of having a right relationship with the Father is if you are somehow more devout in your practice than this guy, and you are more accurate in your interpretation of scripture than this guy. If you want heaven, your righteousness must exceed these guys. And there is just no possible way, there's just no possible way we can fully imagine the initial impact this would have had on Jesus's listeners. See, see, we have the benefit of being able to read all of the New Testament, to even have read the rest of the book of Matthew, where we realize, yeah, these guys could interpret and these guys could practice, but it was really the righteousness was just skin deep. It didn't really go and affect their heart. But here in the beginning of Matthew, if you're just reading straight through Matthew for the first time, Nowhere has Jesus come out and punked out the scribes and the Pharisees, as far as we know, and in the eyes of Jesus' first hearers, this would have been the most impossible requirement you could ever possibly imagine, for Jesus to come along and say, you know that guy who you think is a religious rock star? You know that that guy who is premier in interpreting the scriptures, has given himself entirely in his life to studying the Scripture, to memorizing the Scripture, to interpreting the Scripture as perfectly as he possibly can. You, sir, have to be infinitely better than him if you have any hope of having a relationship with God. And there could be... I mean, you could just feel the the gasp coming from the crowd. To hear Jesus say what he said would have surely drawn the air into their life. (gasps) What? What? Surely some just would have been crushed. Surely some would have been thrown toward despair. These people know the, the, the law of God has 248 commandments. The law of God has 365 prohibitions. The scribes and the Pharisees aspire to keep every one of them. Jesus, how can this be the Singular requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. How can this be? How can you say this, Jesus? How on earth can my righteousness actually exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And you can just hear the exasperation that would be coming from these people as they're looking into Jesus's face, trying to understand what he's saying. And this is my imagination, but I almost imagine Jesus sitting in front of them, when they come to this point going, how on earth can this be the requirement, Jesus? We can't do this. And Jesus, with almost a half smile, going, you got it. You got it. You can't. You can't outrighteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees. There's no way possible you can do it. And it is here in the darkness of our sin-stained inadequacy to save ourselves that the glorious light of the gospel shines most brightly. When we hear Jesus say in verse 20 that our righteousness, our rightness with God is only dependent upon Exceeding righteousness that is better than the scribes and the Pharisees. What Jesus is teaching is this we need a better righteousness. We need a better righteousness. We don't need a righteousness from within. I can't live up to these requirements, I can't keep all of the law. I can't obey God perfectly every single time, of every single day, of every single minute, of every single second, of every single week, of every single month, of every single year, of every single decade, until the day I die. I can't do that. But in steps Jesus, the one who has done this. And in steps Jesus, the one who has perfectly fulfilled the scriptures and in steps Jesus saying, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's meant to drive us down to the place where we recognize our spiritual poverty, where we look at Jesus and go, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but I cannot do this. Jesus, I need a righteousness that is outside of me. I need an external righteousness. I need a righteousness that comes from some other source that's going to be applied to me. I need your righteousness, Jesus, to be credited to my account. This is, I am convinced, the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to launch off from this place forward talking about the true interpretation of the law, how the law was meant to continually point forward to a Savior. And I'm convinced that it is here in verse 20 that Jesus is linking all the way back to the very first things that we were saying about the Sermon on the Mount. The one who hears Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, what it's meant to do is be a smashing ball that comes into your world and opens your eyes to get you to see, I cannot do this. I can't save myself. And that's why Jesus, back in the Beatitudes, says, those who are poor in spirit, those who are poor in their own righteousness, those who recognize, I can't make me right with God. God. Jesus says this is the place where blessing God's happy smile, his good approval shines upon you. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That sounds very much similar to here. Your righteousness, you want into the kingdom of heaven, have a righteousness that's better than the scribes, the Pharisees. It's meant to get us back to the place, to the Beatitudes where we go, I cannot do it on my own. Jesus, I am poor in spirit. And Jesus goes, good, blessed are you. Because yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you're running not to yourself to get into the kingdom, but you're looking around going, I need something outside of me. I need need somebody who's got it. And then in steps Jesus. Your spiritual poverty is to take you to the place where you mourn for your sin, where you are meek and humble and low in light of your sin. And I love this middle beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Where does your satisfaction come from in your hunt and hope of being made right with God? It comes through Jesus Christ, your sole source of better righteousness. The hymn says this, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, I look to you for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Those, those verses from that hymn encapsulate perfectly what Jesus is driving at. Jesus isn't teaching some works-based righteousness. Jesus is helping disciples to awaken to the reality. Your only hope of being made right with the Father is for a righteousness that comes from outside of you to be applied to your account. That is what you need and it's meant to awaken their eyes and drive them back to, I am poor in spirit, I'm mourning over my sin, I am humble and low before you. Jesus, I'm hungering and thirsting for something I don't have and only you alone have. And Jesus steps in with a smile and his arms spread wide and says, Good, come to me, all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden, for you will find rest in me. Your source of satisfaction and for your search for righteousness will be found in me. And I'm convinced that this is what Jesus is talking about here. And it's all rooted in his view of the authority of Scripture, the goodness of Scripture, and the fulfillment of Scripture toward him. How it leads him to understand the high requirements of the kingdom and the way we relate to Scripture. Whether we're going to relax the commandments or whether or not we're going to hold to them, love them, cherish them, do them, teach them. And then Jesus taking us right to that place where he helps us to see that we cannot enter the kingdom on our own ability. Those who enter the kingdom fully recognize their inability to enter into the kingdom. See, I think the essence of our scripture today comes down to this. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied, for they find their satisfaction in the form of a crucified Savior who has been resurrected to life, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, who then in turns will freely impute, freely give, freely credit His righteousness to your account to anyone, to anyone, to anyone who turns from their sin And by faith rests in Jesus Christ alone as their only hope of salvation. See, this is going to be the guiding principle. When Jesus turns the corner and he starts talking next week, what he's going to do is this. He's going to flash back to the Old Testament and he's going to keep saying, hey, remember what God's word said back in the Old Testament? You have had it interpreted to you wrongly. But let me show you the true interpretation. And Jesus is going to start talking about what kingdom life looks like in regard to the righteousness of a disciple by continually flashing back to the authority and the goodness of the word of God. Jesus is going to talk about anger. You have heard that it was said that those of old you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is going to talk about lust. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is going to talk about marriage. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. He's going to talk about integrity, oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. He's going to talk about retaliation. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him and give him the other also. He's going to talk about hatred. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's going to talk about his giving. Talk about a disciple's prayer. Talk about a disciple's fasting. Talk about a disciple's treasure. He's going to talk about anxiety in regard to this world. He's going to talk about how we live life and the way that we judge others. Do we judge ourselves by that same standard? He's going to talk about if you lack discernment on what this looks like, ask and it will be given to you. And then he's going to cap it all off with chapter 7, verse 12, where he's going to reference the law and the prophets again. He's going to roll right into the epilogue where he's going to give this immense challenge and saying, listen what stands before you this are two ways before you there's going to be two ways before you which one are you going to walk in light of what you just heard the authoritative king of all creation say to you and this is the place where we're going this is why the sermon on the mount is so stinking awesome and so stinking challenging right some of us are getting a little sweaty and a little itchy just going man he hasn't even preached on these things all he did was like list off the list of what jesus is going to talk But this is the point because see, jesus cares about his disciples He wants us to image him in a way that glorifies and magnifies his name. So my hope for you is this. As we close up today and as we move forward into the coming weeks, as we continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount, is that you ask God to prepare your heart for what comes ahead in the coming weeks. See, the enemy is going to delight in this. He would delight in you running from this reality. But Christ wants you, wants you, desires to have you. Draw near to him. The grace of Christ says, yes, I am speaking hard words that may wound you, but my wounding is for your good. So that it will awaken you to the reality that you are drifting a drowsy path toward hell. But I want you to be awakened to the reality that this path leads to destruction, which is one of the things he's going to say at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be fooled and lulled into the easy and wide path because the easy and wide path leads to destruction. Hear my words. Let them do their wounding effect upon your heart. Be awakened to the reality that the path that actually leads to God is narrow, winding. It's hard, but it leads to salvation. It's rooted in me. So come to me, flee to me, find grace in me. My hope for you is this, is that you would pray, even now as we close, one of the ways that you can respond is that you would prepare your heart, ask God to prepare your heart for what comes ahead in the coming weeks. Another way that you can respond is through worship. as our brothers, and sister come to lead us in worship. That is a right response to the Father. Another way that you might respond to what you've heard this morning is by taking the Lord's Supper. When we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, this is an event that are for believers, for true disciples, true followers of Jesus Christ. So when we come together to take of the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're speaking an outward act that is representing an inward reality. To come together and drink from that little cup of juice and eat that little piece of bread is saying this, that juice represents the blood of Christ, that That little piece of bread represents the body of Christ. And what I'm doing is showing to the world around me, those who are seeing me, that the blood of Christ has washed me free, made me clean from the stain of sin. The body of Christ was bruised and broken. The wrath of God was poured out on the Son, And through his bruising, through his death, through his resurrection, I now have newness of life. There is a mountain of response there ...for you to come and do this. It speaks a better word. So my invitation for you is come. If you are a believer, a born-again believer... ...come, partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer, don't do that. But stand. Respond in this way. Pray. Ask God. This, this prayer, God, prepare my heart for what comes ahead... ...is not, it's not a prayer that God goes... ...I don't care to answer that for you, you unbeliever. No, God smiles at that prayer. He smiles at that response... Because his delight is to lead you to see Jesus Christ. So for you, it might to be to respond in that way. For some of us, it's going to be sitting and praying. For some of us, it's going to be standing and singing. I'll be at the back if you have any questions. I'll be at the front after the service. If you have any questions about the text, you can come to me. Talk to me. Ask me questions. And i will be my delight to point you toward Jesus Christ. So stand and respond as our brother leads us.